my name's Graham Newman. I'm the founder of Design School Asia. Throughout this Making and Doing series, I'm asking leading creative, technology and business industry experts how their practice is responding to change and how this change can foster cultural, social and economic benefit in Southeast Asia. In today's programme, we're talking to Jeremy Tissot, CEO and founder of Morphosis Apps, a premium and design-first digital agency in Bangkok. As a thought leader in UX design in Thailand, with over 15 years of experience, Tissot turned what started as a small UX UI agency into an end-to-end digital agency, offering diverse services including design, development, conversion optimization, SEO and now marketing for a wide range of international and local clients, such as MasterCard, Agoda and the BBC, as well as developing different tech and design communities in Bangkok through events such as Mobile Mondays, BKK Web Meetup and UX Happy Hour. Tissot discusses which emerging markets are making gains from the pandemic and how the industry has successfully adapted to working remotely. Thank you, Figma and how a career in user experience design is not for everyone. It's far more than digital graphic design, and actually more at home in the humanities and social sciences. There is also a home truth for anyone looking to enter the user experience industry fresh from university or a pivot from other seasoned professionals. User experience is not just UX UI, the common abbreviation that is neither the same nor interchangeable user experience is the parent of user interface framed around human-centered design. Don Norman and Jakob Nielsen define this as a seamless merging of the services of multiple disciplines, including engineering, marketing, graphical and industrial design, and interface design, of which the user interface is obviously an extremely important part of the total user experience. And this is something DSA offers in our user experience program, supporting learning through an investigation of design expertise, behavioural science, innovation and entrepreneurship. When we were talking about this interview, Jeremy, we were looking at discussing emerging markets for UX, UI, user experience. And I guess my question is, is there such a thing as an emerging market during this pandemic and projecting that forward? Uh, there's definitely some emerging markets. I think many companies were like, no, like, no, mostly focus on like, no, like, no physical offline sales. And during the pandemic, it really affected them a lot. And now they need to change their strategies and going digital. And so since the pandemic, we saw like, you no know, like two types of clients that like, you no know, completely di- disappeared for us, at least at Morphosis. Any travel companies, obviously, they all disappeared. No money there. Media as well. <clears throat> Surprisingly, like, you no know, like many companies selling like, you no know, like magazines are doing like, you no know, very badly during that time because no one go to buy magazines anymore. And so these guys, one more reason for them to go like you no know, digital. It was already like you no know, very difficult time for them to try to switch from like you no know, like offline to digital. They were like you no know, very struggling because you cannot have the same models. So you cannot just like port a magazine to be like you no know, like you no know, apply directly uh, online. That's not how it works. And you cannot charge like you no know, like you no know, directly for articles or content. People don't want to pay for that. 
So it's a very different model. You charge for advertising most of the time. But they can be like you know, some higher like subscriptions models. Very often it's a combination of like different things. They are still like you know, very much struggling. They probably like, you know, didn't find a way yet to like you know, adapt their business to be like you know, fully digital. We also see a lot of uh, like you new know, industries that really like you know, benefit directly from the pandemic. So I mean like you no know, something like Zoom. Zoom would not have like you no know, existed at the time without the pandemic. So for them it's like you no know, perfect timing uh, for them to launch that product. And it could not have been better for them to have a pandemic, to be honest. Now there's like you no know, a lot of like you no know, other like you no know, industries yeah, like you, know, you see on that board we're doing education platform and that education platform is a good time for them to move digital as well because like you know all the kids are working from home it's not always very effective what like new schools are creating they're creating some solutions but it's like very bad experience for them for everybody for the teachers for the students and for the parents to be able to support uh, their, their their kids while they're like you know, studying online so there's definitely like you no know, open opportunity there and I think we're going to see like you know, a lot more people try to like you know, work online now. Uh, we see it in our company. Before it was very hard to go like you no know, do like you no know, do everything online or having a model like you no know, boss uh, working uh, physically in a location and being online. Now it becomes like you no know, a lot easier to do this kind of stuff. And it affects a lot of companies and people are going to have a very hard time to force their employees to come back work like you no know, physically uh, full time. It's going to be very, very difficult, which means they need to adapt their business as well. Like you know, almost every single industries need to be able to adapt their business. Yeah. I think it was yesterday that Figma announced the 200 million US Series E investment, which is a classic case of this trend of working collaboratively, which is quite embedded in the creative industries anyway, but having this extraordinary tool, which is obviously taking a lot of market share from Adobe at the right time, it's the right product. And um, I've certainly found that using platforms and software such as Figma really does raise the question as a business owner of, you know, how, how do we actually operate and function is it a blend of the physical and working remotely in the future? Or what, what do you see in terms of how the creative industries are going to operate as businesses moving on? It's always a hard question. Figma yeah, is a good example. Of like, you know, I was actually a very uh, strong advocate of like, you know, Figma when it came out a few years ago. And I told people, this is the future, this platform. Uh, it made so much sense to be able to, like, you know, to collaborate online because you could access it from anywhere. Anyone could collaborate, like Google Docs. And it's funny because Google Docs was the same reaction. They say, people would say at the time, it's never going to work, Google Docs. And surprisingly, it worked very, very well. It does. And Figma is the same. It's like you know, taking the market right now because people need to be able to work like you know, collaboratively. Mm. It's like there's very few jobs that you, know, you work only on your own. Mm. And like you know, to use Sketch or like you know, Adobe XD or Photoshop before that, trying to sync all the designed files between different designers was very, very painful. People would like, you know, overwrite some good files with like you know, some old versions, you would lose like some work over time. And now to be able to have like you know, all the designers collaborate on one platform like you no know, Figma at the same time is so powerful for us. That's why we're using we switch 
almost completely, not every single project, but almost, I would say, 80% of them right. to Figma. Mm. There's only a few clients who want to use uh, Sketch, so we have no choice. But otherwise, all other clients are okay with us uh, moving to Figma. Going back to the, the work you're developing in the edtech sector, this is something that I wanted to ask you and, and kind of dig a little bit more about whether there are opportunities for you know niche applications within edtech, that there's the STEM subjects, there's art and design. With what you're developing, is this for primary school or secondary school? Or what, what's the kind of look and feel of these, these products for edtech? Well, we're doing different type of like, you know, education platforms. Uh, one is more like you no know, diet our like you no know, kids uh, from like you no know, six to ten. It's it's aimed at like you no know, like you no know, really like you no know, teaching kids some basic uh, things such as like you no know, coding, but also like you no know, like you no know, language or music, but in a very fun and intuitive way. So it's almost like a game type of platform. Um, there's of course like you no know, gamification, uh, user engagement. So there's a lot of things going around that. Another platform, which now I can talk about it, is more to teach teachers in Thailand. Uh, because to change education, you don't change the kids first. You need to change the system. And so that woman uh, that owned like, Starfish a Foundation decided to like, you know, teach the teachers new innovative ways to teach the kids. And so to be able to do this, she had to create a platform that allows to teach the teachers directly, teach them these ways, but like, you know, follow them over the time to see what they progress so they can like, you know, also share their work, see how they apply uh, these techniques with the kids, be able to give feedback, be able to ask questions. And so the staffish staff can follow them, they're like coaches, follow them and teach them how to like, you know, uh, uh, refine the techniques basically as they're going. And because it's innovative, there's not just one way of doing it. So it's everyone on the platform can contribute and like, you know, like share their knowledge uh, so that everyone in Thailand can advance and change education system for the long term. Do you think what's going to drive that is more towards primary school or Pratom in Thai basic education, or is it secondary Matayon education? Uh, so it's more having an impact on the younger uh, kids because they are more like uh, malleable. You know, you can change them. Yeah. Uh, when they're a bit older, it's a bit harder to change the systems already. So that's why they like you know, try to innovate more like you know, with younger kids because they can try different things with them and see what's really like you no know, like you no know, what impact they can have on them and 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 then make the change for education system at a broader like you no know, level basically. And what are the barriers you're facing, Jeremy? Because because I suspect that with all emerging markets in Southeast Asia, that there is this management hurdle of it's the way we've always done it. Mm. You know, how do we as creatives circumnavigate that pain barrier to actually pushing and innovating? As part of doing uh, user research, uh, we can do like design thinking uh, workshops, which is design thinking workshops is a way to like, you know, quickly get uh, the direction for the business. So quick iterations, quick validation of a business or concept ID. And if it sticks with the users, then you, uh, you know a little bit more in which direction you can go. Uh, so both doing research and design thinking can help uh, the businesses become more innovative. It forces them to take some risks though. 
uh, even though like you know, design thinking is a quick methodology to like you know, come up with a prototype in a very short amount of time and being able to test it, it still takes some time. And very business a uh, bit afraid to take that time to do these validations because they think, oh no, but we need to launch something by that date. And so we don't need to, to we don't have time to do the research, we don't have time to do design thinking workshops, but they don't see it as investment. You can spend six months to one year to try to develop a product. And either you're right or you're wrong. If you're wrong, the cost is huge. So doing that research and doing design thinking or like no other methodologies like this one to try to validate some business directions is actually a very smart idea and actually can save businesses a lot of money for the long term. And that's what they don't usually see. And a lot of this comes down to the kind of lean startup methodology of, yeah, of, part of it, yeah. small batches and working with the customer and then iterating and then you know using that as a funnel, coming to a shared vision, which obviously shortens delivery time as well. And I know that's one of the key tenets of Morphosis, your stakeholder workshop sessions. Mm. You're finding those productive at the moment during the pandemic? Uh, we do it online now, obviously, uh, but we found a method to do it online uh, using like Miro, uh, using Figma as well. So it's a combination of different tools we're using uh, to be able to do these workshops online. And remarkably, we, it doesn't really affect the outcome much. Uh, it takes a bit more time maybe, uh, like, but we can do like no card sorting in my role. Uh, we can quickly like you no know, like you no know, come up with like you no know, some quick personas. We can even draw. Uh, if you have an iPad and you open my role and you display it to the client, you can just quickly like draw you know what it could look like. Uh, so it never replaced completely a whiteboard where you can be with a client and they can come to the whiteboard. Yeah, what about this? And you can start drawing. Then you draw another solution quickly. So sometimes. Face-to-face is always better. Uh, it doesn't replace it completely, but we still can get uh, some very effective uh, workshops uh, out of uh, our clients. Uh, the way we do the stakeholder interviews is a bit different from like, you know, the normal way what people would do, where it's, like, it's just a list of questions and you go through all the questions trying to like, you know, clarify as much as possible. The way we do it at Morphosis is that we do it to extract, of course, like you know, most other people uh, that they do like stakeholder interview is extractions, but it's also like alignment. So we do a bunch of like you no know, uh, exercise with the client. One is to set business goals, and the business goals we ask uh, like you no, know, we ask to get like you no know, three to five stakeholders from the clients. Can be of course the CEO of the company. Uh, can be maybe like the CTO or like you know, someone from the support team that knows the customers very well or the marketing team, uh, at least someone from the marketing team so we can understand exactly what their goals uh, from their side. And what it does is that when each lists their goals one by one, then you start to see the change in like you know, the face of the other stakeholders say, wait, but this is not my goal. And you see, they realize each of them in the room have very different objectives, mm. which is fine. Mm. As a CTO, maybe you want the platform to be scalable. And like no, like no, uh, being like no very performing, you know, in terms of speed. Maybe for like no, the marketing team, they want to acquire like no 100,000 new users within the first six months of the year. Maybe. 
or it can be like you no, know, like not retain people. That might be their objectives. The CEO might have like you no know, grander vision, and so each of them like setting their goals. At the end, we ask them, okay, so now you all told us what's the main goals. Now we want each of you to select one the, what is the one or two goals that's the most important to you. And the CEO always does the last. We don't want the CEO to influence the rest of the stakeholders. And each of them goes through and they, they, they say, that's my goal for my site, for my department. And then that person is going to select something else and so on, and then the CEO. At the end, we ask them, so what are the ultimate goals? What's the most important stuff for you for that project? What do you want to achieve? And then we have a very clear vision of what are like you know, their goals. And when we start to do the personas, we say, yeah, we want to do this and that and that. And we start to define some personas. We can categorize them. And then we define with like, you know, like six personas and we realize, yeah, but write your goals are this. You want to like you know, acquire new users. So now you say like, no, people on your platform are like 35 to 45 years old, but you don't want to retain them as well. You don't want to acquire them. You don't want to retain them because they're actually making no money for you. So they are not your personnel. And then we help them again, like not to align and like not to give them better direction. That's your personnel. That's the one like the young audience, maybe like 18 to 25 is the one you want to acquire because they are the ones that are going to make money for the company. And their needs are this and that and that. And suddenly, like, we change the full discussion. They realize, yeah, you're right. We had the wrong focus all along. But now we help them to really, like, you know, start to get a strong direction. And after we do some other exercise along the way, and at the end of the session, everyone is very aligned that, yeah, that's what we need to do. And now the MVP, or if we need to rebuild the platform, the objectives are very clear. That's what we need to do. And so now everything else is not so important. And so that's how we can prioritize and start to help them doing cat sorting to like you no know, prioritize the features, vote on the one that should come in the first uh, like you no know, phase or MVP, and then uh, we know what we have to do as designers and developers after that. It's very common, I think, that in enterprises how fragmented each fiefdom is, yes. and it takes a smart it's a bit weird, huh? <laughs> it takes a smart external moderator to actually be the glue to yeah. bring this together and actually okay the objective of this is either customer development or customer retention and it's only when enterprises are facilitated through design thinking workshops like morphosis do that this becomes apparent yeah, um, but sometimes yes, they need to have that external view someone that's really like not biased and not like no including that projects to help them like no see clearly that's what a good moderator does like no doing ux research uh, like no moderation like this one is just to give them that focus to help them like no to like no really find the direction because sometimes when you're too involved in a project you stop seeing what's the real problem and so having that external consultant to help them like, you know, clarify everything, helps them to really identify what can be the, the real problems that they need to solve. Can I be provocative and say, is that a cultural thing embedded in the country where the project is run out of? Or is it more of a corporate thing? I think it's a human thing. I think even in startups, I've seen it as well, is that if you're just too involved in something for like too long, you just need to like know someone external to like know help you get a, a fresh view on it. It happens to me as well. I know my business very well. I know where I'm going with my business, 
But sometimes it's good to like know someone external to tell me, yeah, but okay, so you, you have a clear view. That's what you want to achieve. But I think your focus is very wrong. It happens that we hire like you no know, business consultant. And I thought I knew very well and seems, everything seems to be very clear. For some reason, it didn't work. And when you analyze everything, all these questions like no really like, challenged me. I was really forced to see everything in a different way. And actually, I said, yeah, I was going in the wrong direction. Even though I know where I'm going, the task I was doing was not taking me in that direction. And then when I saw that, then I could like, you know, make that shift and suddenly like, you know, actually make a big move in just one month after I talked to that consultant, we saw the results like, straight away. And sometimes you need someone like that. Yes. I think particularly now where everyone is kind of, you know, working remotely and the, the kind of mental cognition and that tacit conversation is being lost. And it's very important to have a you know, frank and brutal yeah. advisor yeah. to the business just for checks and balances that your instinct is right. I'd like to just go back looking at emerging markets, Jeremy. What's your take on anything on the, the NGO sector? And we can maybe unpack that and look at social innovation projects. It's similar to what the IDO is doing. And of course, someone has to pay for it. And there's not a lot of money in the treasury at the moment. Yeah. Do you foresee any real push on NGO development to help countries such as Thailand and others in Southeast Asia to repair what's happened? Or do you think it's just going to be driven by enterprise? I think it's going to be driven more like by young people. That's what I've seen uh, more like in Thailand. Like you know, very young people that start to see like you know, like something is broken in their country and they really want to make a change. And I don't know, I've, the innovation I've seen, like you know, people are like, really like trying to tackle some real problems like you no know, such as like you no know, education or agriculture, which is very big in Thailand. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting yeah. initiatives to do with farming and agriculture. Very often it's some young kids like you no know, like twenty-five to thirty years old and they're like being like very innovative. So I don't think it's going to come from enterprise like you no know, to change a country at that level. Uh, they are like too stuck in their own ways. They need to make money and like you no know, when corporates are like you no know, stuck in their way like you no know, they need to make money, they cannot innovate because innovation is to take a risk. Innovation always comes from like no like no young people that no might be a little bit stupid, which is like no the way you are when you're young, you're naive, and that's why you take some risks because you don't really know what you're getting into. Yeah, I think it's which is a good thing. It's, it's it comes out of a necessity. Yeah. It's a passion, it's a drive, it's something you really believe and you want to make that change. And what enterprise can do is to actually hire or like no acquire these uh, young people, these young startups to get them into their companies, to give them the money that they definitely need to be able to move forward and to let them do uh, what they're really good at and to take this risk and to change their country. I agree. I think that's how it's going to work. I think this will come bottom up from young designers who are very passionate about big stuff, public healthcare, agriculture, microfinancing. And perhaps the way to fund that startup is to partner with a corporate and go through the CSR funnel. Because, you know, enterprises are still awash with money in Thailand, but they don't know where to spend on CSR. And it will be great to kind of somehow merge these two entities because I suspect they're not having conversations with each other at the moment. No, probably not. But you do see like you know, some companies that's uh, in the financial institutions at least uh, because they are more maybe like aware of like, you know, the change that 
digital can have on their business. I mean, like you no know, cryptocurrencies is a big one there. And I think like you no know, like SCB and other like you no know, big banks so that you no know, this could really disrupt their business. And they saw it pretty quickly. And they, that's why they started to get into like you no know, cryptocurrencies uh, themselves. Uh, then they realized that like, you know, they were like, probably not very good at that, and then they started to acquire like you know, some young startups uh, that were like actually doing innovation there. Uh, so you see that faster, I think, in the financial world, because I think that's more at stake. Things can change very fast, and if you don't adapt very fast, you can die very very fast. Other stuff like education. It's okay if you don't do anything for a few generations. <laughs> Education didn't change for like 200 years almost, you know, so it's, uh, it's quite different there. I know you're very involved with the UX UI community. You are admin of one of the most successful Facebook groups here. What's happened to the enthusiasm of passing information on to each other? Because I don't seem to see that. Uh, I think the problem with social media groups is that it's almost an echo chamber. Yeah, uh, actually there's a discussion we're trying to have to try to create more engagement. Uh, it's always very hard. Because I, I, I wonder where these conversations coalesce, where do they exist or do they exist at all? They should exist in... But it needs in- to come part, uh, I've been organizing events in Thailand for the last 10 years or more now, uh, 11 years probably. Uh, via different groups. Uh, one of the biggest ones was the BKK Web, which is about web design. The way I saw it, especially back back then, there was like almost like no meetup.com, no barely unknown at the time. There were like no only a few groups. Uh, now there's a lot of them. I, I think the way I saw it back then was like education takes time because I saw it as a, like no education platform. Like no, I would invite some people every month. And like the people are very passionate about what they would be doing. And then you teach people just one thing at a time. And it's okay if people like don't always engage. Some stuff I would try to do is like you know, to try to keep them to do some networking afterwards. Uh, you definitely like you know, see Thai people uh, like you no know, go back home like very early for most of them. Mm. Expats mm-hmm. stays much longer on average. That's something that's a fact. I see it all the time. It's not because Thais don't care. If you go to a Thai group only, they actually stay much longer. So it could be they are a bit shy, they are nervous with English. So they also like you no know, live very far, very often. Like you no, know, like you know, if you do something in Saturn or Sukhumvit, most of them lives outside the city, like you no, know, like Plau or like you no, know, Na. So like you no, know, they need to go back home. And taking the BTS can take one hour or more. Uh, so it's a lot of consideration why they live like you no know, much earlier. But you can still like, you know, create engagement. So via the UX uh, happy hour that we're doing uh, with uh, Piyush and Sarah, we, it's only a pure networking events, but we talk a lot about UX stuff. And you can change the discussion to talk about you know, personal stuff or like you know, anything really. But the topics always come back to UX. And we realize that people actually like this, even though we don't do a talk, they still like because they can meet like some more advanced UX designers and they can ask questions and learn from uh, from these more like senior people. They can ask questions about like know how to find a job or like know yeah know, complaining maybe about the managers why they don't structure things. So Thai people actually like know think a lot mm. about like know better way of like know like know structuring. I think they're like very sick. Of like you know the way uh, corporate is structured, like you no, know, like you no, know, it's uh, from top to bottom. Uh, they cannot say anything. They are forced to do like you no know, a lot of overtime, 
they are not being respected uh, in their opinions. Their opinions don't matter very often, which is creates a lot of frustrations. They want to make, they want to change the way we do UX. They want to do more research. They want to back their their, their design with like you know, real data and so on. But their managers or like you know, top management don't let them do this kind of stuff. Mm. And I think you see there's a group like UX Thailand, which is like 15,000 people or 20,000 uh, maybe now. There's a lot of discussion there. It's all in Thai, and they, they really discuss like very deeply about different topics all the time. So I think the Thai, Thai community for UX is very, very engaged, and they really want to make a change in Thailand. That's my opinion. I agree. And I do blame senior managers. And I strongly believe that there is this miscommunication that UX is digital graphic design. You know, yeah. It's not. It's every human computer interaction. That's why, you know, user experience, I'm very strong on calling it that. And it's not just digital graphic design. But I believe that many people misunderstand the boundaries of UX UI is not just clicks and apps. Yeah. There's a lot more conceptually to how we can develop social, cultural and economic issues through engaging with user experience design. I know this is something that you're very big on and there's a very interesting post on LinkedIn from you last week about onboarding and about how to drive recognition of skills and you know achievement assisting that process of onboarding and independent learning and inquiry. And you alluded to gamification in that uh, post. Can we unpack that a bit more? Yeah, sure, yeah. Doing uh, user onboarding, uh, I know you had a question, it's like, why do we even need to do it? You know, if it's like, no, like, no, is that like no higher, like no prime in it? Like, no, like, no, is that the concepts are like no so wrong that no, we need to teach uh, users how to use your platform? Maybe like no, there's something fundamentally wrong. I totally agree with that. If your system, if your product is clear enough, it's very intuitive, you should not have to teach users how to use it. Now that said, it's always um, more complicated than that. Uh, there's sometimes you just need to teach people how to use it. For example, there's like accounting system. You might not be an expert in accounting and you need to be able to use these tools. That's your job, uh, maybe not as accountant, but you start a new business, you need to create, like, you know, use one of these tools. So they need to teach you some fundamental uh, concepts, how the platform is structured, and what are like, the main tools that you can use on that platform. And of course, you can skip this if you already know how to use accounting softwares. You probably know how to find things pretty fast within that platform. Uh, there's also like some concepts sometimes so unique, like Tinder is one of them, or Snapchat, where the, the navigation was like so unique that they had to teach people how to use. And even Tinder now, you, you would think, why do they need to teach how to swipe? You would think like, no, it's such concept that's been mm. uh, understood by everybody. Mm. that they should not have to teach people anymore. Mm. But if you open like Tinder, you create a new account, you will see that the first thing every time they teach you how to like you know, swipe again. Mm. Mm. So it's, it's prompting. It's prompting every time. It's very simple. The onboarding yeah. is pretty clear. You can swipe right to like, swipe left, uh, left to dislike. Very simple concepts. But they still need to teach it. And that's interesting that they still have to do it uh, until now. Now there's some stuff for onboarding that you can do that can be uh, a bit more like you no know, 
contextual and attached to a time as well. So for example, like no, the initial onboarding was it issue like no, the main thing on the platform. But over time, they need to teach you some more advanced concepts. But this needs to be like no triggered when you've done enough tasks already. Mm. So you've done like no some tasks and then to teach you these more like no advanced concepts, mm. they're going to trigger it only when you've achieved all these steps. And then they can start to teach you this one, which can be a good way instead of like no throwing everything on you, they start to teach you bit by bit over time. And so that's quite interesting uh, concepts as well. Lastly, Jeremy, as one of the key spokesmen of UX community in Thailand. We have hundreds of graduates who have come out of the top five design universities. We'd like some of them in our industry, in the user experience industry. And some of them are not sure about whether to do publishing or branding or motion graphics. What's your message to them to... To find their path? Well, I was thinking more in terms of selling a career in UX. So them selling it to me. No, you selling it to them. You say, I'm selling it to them. They should sell it to me. <laughs> uh, You'd be surprised. <laughs> okay, so to sell it to them. Yeah, that's still an like, interesting question. Okay, first of all, you need to define a bit what's UX and UI. And I, I see like three different groups in there. Uh, UX UI is like so broad that you cannot define it in just one position. I say like there's three positions, there's probably like more than that, for sure. Uh, but the main ones would be like you know, UX researcher, information architect. So the information architect is the one that's going to create the wireframes, user flow chart, uh, is problem solving skills, basically. UX research is more analytical skills. There's communication skills, moderation skills, obviously, because you need to talk to a lot of users. You need to remain very calm. So you need to like to talk to people. Uh, so it's not for everybody there. Uh, and you need to be able to analyze the data and come up with strong strategies around it, uh, usually. Uh, so it's not for everybody. So for example, a designer, a visual designer, usually is not interested at all in doing UX research. It's a boring job for them. It's a boring job to me as well. Uh, and the last job would be like a you know, visual designer, so it's a UI designer, the user interface designer, which is more to take care of like, you know, the colors, the style, the fonts, uh, spacing, and other stuff like that to make sure that like, the platform looks beautiful, basically. But also it serves the purpose through colors, to use the right colors, to send the right emotions to users, to take care of the brand as well, because it's a part of branding as well. Even though like usually you get the logo and brand guidelines from your clients, you still need to incorporate the brand into your designs and make sure it's perfectly consistent. Uh, it's a very different job. It's a more artistic job. You can still uh, contribute into the UX because the way you use colors or lights or contrast can guide the eyes towards the right action for users. So a good UI designer can still have a very strong impact on the UX, or they can destroy the UX in the other way around. So it's still a very important job uh, right there to do. So it's really like you know, the three uh, positions that I really see like you know, the most frequent one. UX researchers, information architect, and UI designer. And very often it's very hard to find someone that can do the three at the same time. Very, very rare. You can find someone that might be able to do UX research and information architecture. Mm. You might find someone that can do information architecture and UI design. 
but to find the three together, yeah. couple people in my career I've seen can yeah. really do it like not very well, otherwise, yeah, yeah. Very, very hard. So now back to your questions, uh, why, uh, how to sell it to them. I see a lot of people like no comment from industrial design or architecture. It's a very good fit actually for us because it's the same skills that you need to have. Like you know, they need to do some research, they need to understand their market and audience like you no know, perfectly. They need to come up with some architecture, uh, like you know, some some high-level architecture to solve the problem. And then of course to present a final product that can be more visual at the end. So the steps are like almost the same as what we see. Same for industrial design, very similar uh, process basically. And these people do very well uh, for UX, UI. Yeah, I think it really depends on your type of skills. Like, we see like you know, some graphic designers try to change their career to become like a UI designer. They do very poorly for most of them because I'm not sure why it is, but graphic design is a lot more artistic. UI design, UX, UI design, when you create a product, you don't do art at all. No, I think it's very much embedded in the social sciences. Mm. and less in design. Yeah. It's, it's more like to solve a problem. It's like you know, to, to create a product for users that they're going to use on a daily basis. It's not art. And, but graphic design, when you create advertising, it becomes very artistic because you need to create you know, you need to like, you know, a lot more emotions. You play a lot more with the emotions. And so having that artistic talent in like no UX UI design is still important, but yeah, it's, it's not the same. It's, uh, so that's very often they don't convert very well to UX UI design when they come from the graphic design background. Not all of them, of course, but uh, very often. My position would be this is the most stable of all the creative industries and it will only grow. So my advice to all graduates would be consider user experience because as you say, there are areas from design practice and engineering and social science and data science. And I think it's this really interesting blend of left brain and right brain practice. And I think there's something for everyone provided you really want to push yourself and you know work in this fascinating industry. Actually, this is a good point that if uh this could be the argument actually is that if you want to keep growing, if you like to learn, that's one of the best industries to be in, like you no, know, to be in digital. Because I've been I've been doing this for like 15 years, more than 15 years now. And since the beginning of my career, the way we designed for the web after mobile came in at the same time, it, it changes all the time. And like you no, know, it's still like you no know, new industry. There's so much to refine and to improve, like no our time. Not everyone knows everything yet. You know, it's not a proven uh, science yet. So, if you as a student really want to learn, that's an industry you will never get bored. Like no, it's always going to change in your life. You are always going to progress. Another good argument is that you can really make good money in that industry. There's a very like you know, the supply and demand. Uh, there's <laughs> more demand than supply so people pay very good salaries on average and you can make a lot more money than you can do in a lot of other industries as a, at least as a designer uh, it's, it's a very good industry to be in I think that's a fantastic pitch lifelong learning and a decent paycheck yeah that cannot hurt Jeremy thank you so much yeah. for your time thank you very much
you can contact Jeremy via the Morphos.is website and on LinkedIn. If you are considering a career in user experience design, applications are open for our user experience design program starting in August. Students will receive 180 hours of UX/UI flexible learning over 12 weeks and five weeks of co-op industry placement at one of Bangkok's leading digital agencies. If you are interested in learning how to create remarkable experiences across strategy, design and technology to accelerate your career in Southeast Asia's fastest growing creative industry, places are limited and applicants will be assessed on interview and prior experience from undergraduate programs or professional practice. That brings us to the end of today's program. Many thanks to our guest Jeremy Tissot. Making and Doing is produced by supervillain Dana Bluin. From me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening.